Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there. And this is Crystals. How are you doing, man? Well, what do you think? <laughs> This is this is, uh, it's okay. Is it, the the source material was not great. We won't say where we got it. <laughs> but um I think that once we kind of make it through the the structure part, we'll we'll be home free. Plus it's, great. I mean, plus it's crystals. Like they're they're so worth understanding, going to the trouble of understanding because they are um basically a a finger in the eye to the tendency of the universe to move toward chaos and disorder because a crystal is the most ordered structure in the universe. It's a a pattern that repeats over and over and over again, so much so that in a crystal, if you look at a, 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 a perfectly formed pure crystal mm-hmm. that, that came to be under ideal conditions, mm-hmm. the shape that you're looking at if you could zoom in to the smallest three-dimensional unit of atoms inside that crystal, mm-hmm. it would be the exact same shape. Yeah. I mean, that is one uh, – the one positive I took out of this article was just that thing early on the author did about the word crystallize mm-hmm. that we take colloquially. colloquially. That was <laughs> – a couple extra L's in there. <laughs> that we take, to, you know, what everyone knows what that means. It, it means like, you know, someone has distilled and made order out of something tough uh, with their with their mouth words. Right. Like <laughs> and that makes sense. Yeah. So when you when you think about a, like an actual physical crystal, you get why that word came from that, because it is that it is this extreme order where all these molecules come together as friends to be perfect together so um so we both love crystals for basically the same reason it sounds like right yeah and like the, the before i started researching this i just thought i don't know like crystals were just the things you buy in little five points mm-hmm. at the the shop with the the kooky person who you know wears them on their forehead for healing chakras who wore Birkenstocks uh, <laughs> before they were cool and I didn't. I didn't even realize that it's like crystals are also salt and sugar and snowflakes yeah. and diamonds and rubies. It's it's uh, like you're you're a crystal as far as I'm concerned. So are you, Chuck? Thanks. Can we all be crystals in our heart? <laughs> sure. In our heart chakras. Yes. So um, yeah, that was a big takeaway for me too. Was the um, the 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 fact that crystals aren't necessarily a thing; they're a type of structure that a thing can fall into. You know what I mean? Yeah, and there and there's seven basic shapes uh, or lattices that a crystal can take: mm-hmm. uh, cubic, trigonal, triclinic, <laughs> orthorhombic, my favorite, triaminic, <laughs> uh, hexagonal, tetragonal, and monoclinic. Monoclinic. I don't. I think there's like ten people on the planet who say that word out loud ever. So, however you want to say it, I think right. they're okay. I think with. Nine of them will e- email us, <laughs> right? 
So, um, yeah, and, and again, those lattice shapes that you just described, those are three-dimensional structures, arrangements of atoms. And the crystal itself that you can sit and hold in your hand and be like, I can feel the energy just pulsating through this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you zoomed in, the smallest three-dimensional arrangement of atoms that, that forms a pattern that can be repeated, the minimal size pattern that's repeated is called the um, unit cell. That is the exact same shape. I just, I can't, I'm going to say that five different times, I think, in this episode. So there's two, okay? <laughs> and, um, oh, hey, sorry, I know we've already gotten started, but do you mind if I uh, do a little plug here? Whoa. I know this is kind of out shop? of left field. Yeah. <laughs> sure, Josh's Crystal Shop. So uh, just real quick, everybody, geez, this is really poorly placed, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's great. Okay. We're not talking about crystals, so it's good. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I wanted to plug, I'm going to do some live shows, Chuck. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be in Minneapolis uh, at the Parkway Theater on right. June tw- June 19th. Okay? Okay. And then the next night on June 20th. Am I supposed to be at these places? Yes, you are. <laughs> I've got a front row seat reserved for you at both of oh, them. Oh. Yeah. And it's going it, to, I'm going to have actually a cardboard cutout of you sitting there so everybody will know, <laughs> Don't they'll notice if Chuck didn't show up, you know what I mean? Yeah. The next night, um, you're going to have to travel to D.C. because that's where I'll be at the Miracle Theater on June 20th. Awesome. And um, if... People were so inclined to buy tickets, they could go to the the parkwaytheater.com or the miraclethater.com, and there's tickets there. And I assume this is end-of-the-world material, yeah. correct? Yeah, sorry. Thanks for that. I'm so bad at this. Um, the the It's the End of the World Live, and whether you've seen the, or listened to the End of the World series by now, the podcast series I made, um, or not— you would still get something out of this. This is going to be a pretty cool show because it kind of takes these themes and expands on them and explores other other avenues, other blind alleys that I didn't go down in the series. I love it. Thanks, Go, go everybody. Go, go, go. I appreciate that. Of course. So, obviously, we're talking about crystals again now. Yeah. So, uh, crystals can be very small. Like, in, we, you know, our, our Great Snowflake episode is a pretty good example. Right. Or they can be very big, and the longer these crystals grow, the bigger they're going to get, and they're going to have fewer uh, contaminants. Although, as we will learn when we talk about gemstones, those contaminants are where they get their brilliant colors. Right. Yeah, so you kind of want contaminants. But most sure. crystals, from from what I understand, are colorless. Like, most... um. Uh, it, pure crystals are colorless. Pure, just don't say pure crystal. <laughs> That's different. <laughs> That's a different thing. So um, you hit upon something that I think is also worth pointing out. Like usually when people think of crystals, again, they're thinking of like that little five points hippie shop kind of crystal. And you imagine it being formed in like a cave or in some sort of fissure in the earth or something like that, somewhere inside the earth. But like you said, snowflakes, they form above the earth. Salt forms on the Earth's, Earth's surface. These are all crystals. So again, a crystal is not necessarily just a thing. It's a it's a structure. It's a repeating pattern of an arrangement of atoms. That is a crystal. And one way to to remember this, um, or to really just kind of have the the awe smacked into your your forehead chakra, is c- carbon can be arranged in different ways. So the same. The same molecule of carbon can be arranged in a way um, that makes it graphite or makes it a diamond. So chemically speaking, diamonds and graphites are the exact same thing. 
um, crystallogically speaking, they are two different things because they form two different crystalline structures. Right. And if you're confused by saying the words little five points two times, uh, we just assume everyone is from our neighborhood in Atlanta. (laughs) But uh, that is an an area of Atlanta where you can find a a drum circle or buy a Mm -hmm. crystal or some Birkenstocks or some high-quality incense. Or uh, pure crystal. Or (laughs) probably pure crystal in the right (laughs) corner. (laughs) It throws a pretty good Halloween parade, too. Yeah, you know, it's great. It's it's remained fairly unchanged since I was hanging out there in high school. It's it's kind of kind of great in that way. I would think just about every city has its own version of little five points, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been to them in every city. Okay, so there you go. So that's what we're talking about when we say little five points, everybody. Yes. So um, let's talk crystals. Let's talk how, how um, like, what an actual crystal is made from or how it's made, I guess. No, no, no. I still can't come up with the word. What makes a crystal a crystal? That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, because it, it can get really confusing if you think about the fact that crystals can be salt or snowflakes or semiconductors or in a computer display monitor or a television mm-hmm. as liquid crystal. It, it's And I know we've hammered this home, but it's uh, it, it's really all those things because crystals are a formation. Right, right. So you you take atoms of a certain type or variety. Um, usually, ions are a big early um, like predecessor atom of um, crystals. Mm-hmm. Ions. They're early adopters. Po- po- right. They're either positively or negatively charged atoms. Is an ion, right? So they've got an extra electron. They are missing an electron. Something went horribly awry with their electrons, and it converted this atom into a charged atom. And those ions can attract other ions, they can repel certain kinds of ions, and they start to clump together in a certain way. And they will, depending on the ion, um, or eventually the atom, I don't think you have to have ions to have crystals. I just think they're the most common basic type of atom that you find in a crystal. Yeah. But depending on the type of ion or atom that starts setting off this um, aggregation or attraction of other atoms into a clump, it's going to start to form a three-dimensional model. What I spoke about earlier, what are called unit cells. And that little three-dimensional model is going to start attracting more atoms. And another three-dimensional model of the exact same variety is going to be built. And now you've just gone from a unit cell, the most basic unit of the three-dimensional shape of a crystal, into the lattice which is the build-out of that, that unit upon unit upon unit upon unit that just can keep going and going virtually indefinitely. Yeah, it's almost like they um, these ions are attracted, and when they get there, they see what's going on, what kind of party they're having. Sure. And they're like, that looks great to me. Yep. Like, I'm going to jump in there, and why would I want to mess it up by being any different? Yeah, I, I really feel like falling in line. It's kind of a fascist piece of matter if you think about it. <laughs> A crystal is. Yeah, and there were another couple of decent descriptions um, or metaphors, I guess, in this article uh, in terms of long-range order and short-range order. Mm-hmm. I thought that made a little bit of sense. Um, uh, if Because if, crystals, like you said, can it can be a single crystal mm-hmm. or it can be a very large structure. And if it's long-range order, they liken it to like a halftime band all marching in formation, like 
200 people all together in synchronicity like that. Okay. Does that sound about right? Yeah. I just found that deeply confusing, but I got it now. Oh, really? <laughs> Once you explained it, I got it. Uh, short range order, on the other hand, they liken to that marching band scattering around into smaller subunits. Right. And this is more like liquid crystal like you would find in a TV monitor. Yeah. And so from the research that I saw, this short range crystals almost didn't even need to be mentioned in this yeah. um, article because the, it has so few, um, it appears in so few places that really when you're talking about crystals, it almost by definition has to have long range structure. Yeah, I mean, you um, usually think almost always of crystals as solid matter. Right, exactly. Um, it, with with basically short range is just this crystalline structure. The unit cell forms over a few atoms and anything beyond that is long range, and that's when you start to get into the money crystals, I guess is what you'd call them. Yeah. You want to take a break? Sure. You feeling okay so far? I'm all right. Yeah, me too, ma'am. Uh, we will be right back, everybody. We're going to go breathe into a paper bag. Okay, we're back. We went through three paper bags, it turns out. <laughs> it's so funny, after 11 years, we still care enough that we can feel like we're hanging on by our fingernails. But yeah. we still push through and generally get it right. <laughs> I'm good with generally correct. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, most of the time we get it right. Yeah. There's, there's that little bit of impurity, and those impurities give the individual podcasts their brilliant hues that make some of the gemstones. <laughs> Very nice. So um, there's a little more to talk about about how crystals form, right? Again, when we're talking about crystals, I guarantee you the thing that's coming into your mind is an amethyst. Or maybe even you're, you're savvy enough to know that precious gems are also crystals, like sapphires or rubies or something like that. Um, that's probably what's coming into your head. And what you're seeing there, what you're imagining, this brilliant, beautiful, um, translucent uh, a perfect shape with a bunch of different facets that are on display. Yeah. That is, that's a kind of crystal, but what you're talking about is a, a kind of crystal that formed under ideal conditions, and those ideal conditions are very rare, which is why gemstones tend to be pretty rare. More often than not, what, what you will see in nature or, you know, just on the ground or, you know, in some kid's backpack, I don't know, I'm grasping <laughs> at straws right now, um, are what are called polycrystals, where the conditions that the crystals formed under, and we'll talk about how crystals form in a second, but the conditions that they formed under were not ideal, and there were a bunch of different kinds of atoms present. And so rather than forming one beautiful single crystal, because again, when you have this giant beautiful tetrahedron of amethyst in your hand, that is one, that's considered one single crystal. It's one giant crystal. If you have a big rock with a bunch of, like, um, pyrite in it just kind of sparkling back at you, what you're holding is a, a, a countless number of individual crystals that all kind of grew together. And rather than forming one beautiful crystal, they form one big lump or mass 
And it's still a bunch of crystals, and it still has crystalline structure. It's just multiple crystals, and it's called a polycrystal. And that's what you see much more frequently because, again, conditions for crystals to grow under are, are infrequently ideal. Right. And this is where I step in and make the one joke that I thought of during that, hmm. which that Tetrahydron of Amethyst was the best Yes album. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, yes, I have to say, Yes did second to Iron Maiden in beautiful album covers. Uh, they were pretty good. They had great ones. Um, so polycrests, contrary <laughs> to what you might think. Or hear or read. <laughs> are not stronger than single crystals because it's like, uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense. If you're assembling a model from 100 pieces, mm -hmm. it's probably not as strong as something that's made from one thing. Right. Because where they join, it's going to have weak points. That's a million percent right, right? Yeah. Because, again, if you if you realize that a, a beautiful giant crystal is just one solid piece, those all those little smaller crystals, they, they're going to break apart much more easily because they have weak spots. They're not joined together with these amazing covalent or ionic bonds that are holding that that single crystal together. Right. So it makes sense in that respect. Sure. So um, let's talk about how crystals are formed. Do you want to? There's really basically just three ways that yeah. they form, whether whether they're human-made or made in nature. They basically come about three different ways. Yeah, and um, I'm going to skip out of order here because uh, for the kids out there, you can actually grow a crystal at home. Yes, you can. In pretty short order, and it's pretty neat. So if you are a kid or if you're a parent with some kids, uh, here's what one kind of fun thing that you can do, and this is how to make uh, a crystal out of a solution, uh, which is one of the three ways. Mm -hmm. uh, you can actually grow a sodium chloride salt crystal Ooh, yeah. in just a few days. It's not the kind of thing you need to wait around like a year for. Or millions of years. That's right. So to do this, kids, you need uh, get some whatever kind of salt you can, but you can just get regular sodium chloride table salt, some distilled water, uh, a glass, uh, like bell jar, any kind of glass is great. Um, and then a spoon. You stir salt into boiling hot water until no more of it will dissolve. And you're going to start to see some crystals start starting to appear at the bottom of this thing. Mm -hmm. And make sure the water is as close to boiling as you can get. Then you're going to pour that solution into that clear jar. And you put uh, the spoon there just to make sure the, the jar doesn't break. That always helps. Oh, okay. Is that... I, I, we've got to do a short stuff on the physics of that someday. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that was an old, like, uh, uh, waiting tables trick when you made iced coffee. Mm-hmm. Which is just, when, what we did was just pour hot coffee in a big thing of ice. Sure. Well, this was pre-hot coffee craze. Like cold brew. Right. Yeah. Um, so then you suspend a string, that string that I told you about, uh, into the jar from a spoon and just lay it across the top of the jar so it's hanging down in that uh, solution. And then just don't touch it for a while, and you will literally see crystals forming on this string over the next few days. Yep. It's really, really cool. It is very cool. Um, I saw another experiment you could do at home. It's got a couple extra steps, but you can make um, a beautiful kind of magenta-colored crystal with um, just straight-up alum and a couple of things. You grow a seed crystal— and you use that, you dangle it like on a string like you were saying, but uh, it actually grows more crystals up to it as well. So you can grow this stuff at home, and both of those are uh, crystal grown from solution. Right. And crystal grown from solution is, like you were just saying, you put in salt into hot water until you can't dissolve it anymore. That means that the salt or the water has become 
saturated with salt. No, it cannot hold any more salt, right? Sorry, TS. But that salt's got to go somewhere, and it will eventually be forced into a solid state, especially as that liquid cools. Because water that's warmer, or anything that's warmer, means that the, the atoms and the molecules are further apart, which means there's more space for salt. But as that water cools down, that space shrinks, and that salt's got to go somewhere, so it turns into the solid state and, and forms crystals. And it's that, that happens with salt at a relatively cool temperature, at a relatively low pressure, you know, basically sea level pressure on Earth. But that same thing can happen under water in hydrothermal vents. It can happen with magma inside the mantle of the earth. Um, there's, there's the, the, the conditions can change. So you have different temperatures, different pressures, different types of atoms. And they'll form under those different conditions, different kinds of things. But crystals can form anywhere. They, they can form on the surface of the earth, again, in clouds and inside the earth itself. Yeah, and if you're going to grow from a solution like that, uh, like you do in your kitchen, you can produce uh, crystals much, much faster uh, and produce bigger crystals than you can with uh, a vapor deposition, which is, you know, snowflakes, which we've talked about a lot on this mm-hmm. show. Which is basically, so vapor de- depositions are basically the same thing. Instead of a liquid solution becoming supersaturated, a gaseous solution has become supersaturated. And so that the water vapor can't, the, the air can't hold anymore. So it pushes it into a solid state and forms snowflakes. Yeah. Then there's a third method uh, from growth from melt, which is really kind of interesting. And there's a few different ways to do this too. Um, but basically what you're doing is you're cooling a gas until it's a liquid and then chilling that liquid until it starts that, you know, crystallization process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's there's a few ways. There's one called uh, crystal pulling or the, uh, here we go, Zakralski method. Yeah, and this is, this is a human-made method of, of creating crystals, right? Yeah, it was named from a Polish scientist by the name of Zakralski. Kazimierz Funk. Uh, in 1915. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, you know, all of these involve actual machines and this, you know, when you hear about superconductors and stuff like that, like this is, these are man-made things or human-made things uh, and methods and processes that people figured out a long, long time ago. Right. Crystal polling's pretty nuts. So amazing. Did you see any videos on it? Yeah, I watched some videos and looked at like some still images of the machinery. It, it is pretty cool. So it's like do you, do that science uh, experiment that I found where you create a crystal and then you tie it to a fishing line. You basically just hang it over the solution. This is that's a very simple version of what they're doing with crystal pulling. You're using a seed crystal that is basically providing the structure for the solution below it. Yeah. And you you just touch that seed crystal just to the solution and it basically sets off an attractive chain reaction that creates a crystal. So you slowly raise the crystal upward or the, that seed crystal upward and the crystal follows it out of the solution. It's like grows. something from a Marvel movie. Essentially, yes. You know? it, it is. That's another reason why I love crystals is just the 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 way that they form is so astoundingly awesome. And and with crystal pulling in particular, this is kind of an old technology. I think it's from the early 1900s. Yeah, 1915 was when it was first uh, invented. And um, 
since then, they've gotten so good at it, and it's so perfectly automated, that they can calculate how fast a crystal forms under crystal pulling. And so they will have the machine raise that seed crystal at the rate of crystal formation. And now they can get to places where they're forming um, crystals that have like, there are a foot around in diameter. That, that are just perfect, absolutely perfect crystals. Because also, the solution that they're using, that they're dipping that, that seed crystal into, has been purified. So it's the absolutely pure version of whatever you're trying to make a crystal out of. So uh, say that you could make diamonds out of this. You, could, you would have pure carbon in, in um, a solution, usually melted, and then you would have a diamond um, dangling down as the seed, and you would grow a, a seed diamond. That's not how you can make diamonds, but no. that's how they—that's what they do with um, silicon, actually. Yeah, and there's uh, another method um, from from with the, you know the melting method called the Bridgman Stockbarger method, <laughs> uh, named for Percy Bridgman and Donald Stockbarger. Or stop. Sure. I guess it's a hard G, right? Sure. He's Stockbarger. The, he's the Art Garfunkel of the crystal <laughs> manufacturing world. And from what I got, this is used uh, when the crystal pulling method isn't so great for certain materials. Right. And in this case, you take – it's sort of like take an ice cream cone shape, uh, a conical shape, and you lower it, uh, fill it with molten material, lower it into a, a cooler area so it cools from that very bottom tip, just the tip. Just the tip. Upward. Um, and it just, it's kind of the same way. It just sort of works its way up, joining the party, saying, this looks good. I like the way you guys are shaped and ordered. I'm just going to jump right in. Yeah, so as the tip of that cone goes further downward into the colder temperature, that crystal grows upward in the tube, right? Yeah. And then eventually you have a whole tube that's just one one giant crystal. That's right. And then you think, how am I going to get that out of here? Oh, Yeah. I hadn't really planned this out all the way. I've just got a beautiful crystal trapped in a, a canonical tube. I'm sure this, uh, I'm sure it opens, don't you think? Well, maybe that's where, uh, what was the second name in that? Uh, Har- oh, I can't remember. Donald is his first name. Well, maybe that's where Donald, <laughs> that was his big contribution, was maybe having so. a hatch on the back. Yeah, I imagine there's something like that. So if I were going to put my money down on the best human-made synthetic crystal um, process. It would be epitaxy. And in particular, um, molecular deposition, molecular molecular beam epitaxy. Yeah. And this is one, uh, again, where you're growing. I mean, all of these kind of start with a base crystal mm-hmm. and it grows from there. And in this case, the base has to be just like atomically flat. Right. That's a good band name too. Atomically flat is pretty good. Not bad. Math rock? <laughs> yeah, of course. So with the, with the reason it has to be atomically flat is because you want to build from a pure crystal structure. And again, if you introduce atoms, especially like um, previously uh, sorted atoms, like the kind of atoms you want uh, to build this crystal structure out of— um, they will fall into this arrangement when they're introduced to the crystalline structure that's already there. And then they, layer by layer, atomic layer by atomic layer, will form a crystal uh, that's built out. And with molecular beam in particular, you're shooting a beam of atoms across this perfectly flat substrate. And um, 
they are they're introduced in a way so they don't collide with one another. They just click, click, click right into place. Yeah, the, the, again, this uh, there were a couple of decent um, examples in here. And this one, they said if you think of a rack of billiard balls mm-hmm. and if you just throw a ball on top of that, it will come to rest somewhere, you know, who knows where, but somewhere between those other balls. It's not going to. It would be pretty amazing if it just sat directly on top of one of the balls. <laughs> right. But that's not going to happen. It's going to find its place where it fits best. Right. Uh, it gets in where it fits in. Yeah. Um, and then was there's, that from? That was from roundabouts. Right. <laughs> uh, then there's chemical vapor deposition, which is the same thing, but instead of a beam of molecules that you're sending over that substrate, you're shooting vapor. You're just blowing vapor over it, and that way the atoms kind of link up too. Yeah, and that's faster, Right. It's faster, and that's what they use for synthetic diamonds. Yeah, they're like, you need a crystal now? Right. (laughs) No, I needed it yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Remember the Diamonique from the 90s? I don't remember Diamonique. I I remember Diamonoid and Diamels. It's all all the same, I'm sure. Yeah, or Cubic Zirconia. Yeah, those were probably just all trade names, right? I would guess so, sure. Um, Diamonique just always stuck with me. It just sounded so fancy. That's a nice name. Um, and then lastly, there's liquid phase epitaxy, which is pretty awesome. So imagine a solution, and you have a um, that perfectly flat atomic substrate crystal, and you just lift it up out of the solution, and as it comes up out of the solution, a crystal just forms out of nothing. Amazing. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't take it, Chuck. You want to take a break? Yeah, we'll take another break and we'll talk about uh, gemstones and then crystal healing and what that's all about right after this. Okay, dude, I should say I was at... um the Smithsonian the other day. Oh, nice. You know, I went up to D.C. because uh, to hear uh, Jeff Bezos deliver his news about Blue Origin landing on the moon. How was that? It was awesome. Yeah? It was really cool. Like, he was up there on stage, and uh, it was probably a room of 100, 150 people maybe. And um, behind him, the curtain comes down, and there's a full-scale model of the lunar lander he's going to send up in like three years. Oh, wow. It's pretty cool. Did everyone gasp? Yes, and clapped. Oh, cool. Appropriately so. But um, so while I was there, I killed some time at the Museum of Natural History. That's easy to do. And uh, I was just entranced. As a matter of fact, we're doing this episode because of their the crystal um, display there. I was like, have we never done one on crystals? And I thought, no, we haven't. And I, then I thought, well, we really should. And then I thought, well, let's just go get a sandwich in the meantime. And I wasn't there to knock you over the head with a, <laughs> with a rubber mallet. <laughs> yeah, to knock me out of the loop. <laughs> and be like, what happened? I don't know, man. You just passed out. <laughs> we had a sandwich in his hand. <laughs> but the uh, the the mineral um, the mineral and, and crystal and gem uh, collection they have there is just amazing. It's just so beautiful. It's like a just a little wonderland. You're just wandering around from case to case staring at crystals. It's really neat. And there's one in particular that really caught my fancy. It's uh, They just look like ordinary dumb rocks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the light goes out and a black light comes on in this little display case. And they're fluorescent crystals Whoa. embedded in the rocks. And then the light comes back on. And then it goes back out. And then back on. And it's really amazing to watch. 
And but, then the light came on and your pants were down. <laughs> <laughs> Do no fault of my own, everybody. I'm just selling this whole thing. So gemstones, uh, like we said a couple of times, they are crystals. Um, and here's the deal. Like, depending on the type of, um, I mean, we're not calling them imperfections or, I guess, impurities. is Flaws. Yeah, flaws. Shameful flaws. Yeah, that's where they, they get their color. So like a ruby and a sapphire – they're both corundum, but rubies are red because of a little bit of chromium yeah. that replaces a little bit of aluminum, aluminum in the structure, mm-hmm. whereas sapphire comes blue because of iron and titanium instead. Right. Otherwise, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah. Just somehow some of those, um, some chromium or some iron or titanium atoms got sucked into the mix and they said, hey, I kind of like this crystal structure thing. I'm going to hang out here. And they did. And yeah. they, they said, I'm going to turn this thing blue. Watch this. Yeah, and even the name crystal, doesn't that come from the Greek from quartz? It, yeah, that's what they called quartz was crystallos, which is cold drop, which we take to mean as ice. ice? Yeah. Um, and I read in this article, I didn't see it anywhere else, that the apparently the Greeks thought quartz was ice that had frozen so solid it would never melt. Hmm. It sounds a little dumb to me for the Greeks. I think the Greeks were a little hipper than that. Yeah. Um, because I mean, just think for a second, Greeks, and they would say, <laughs> yes, you're right. This is something else entirely. But yeah. that's where crystal came from was that Greek word crystallos. Yeah. And quartz, uh, I mean, like amethyst is a kind of quartz. It's just quartz with the right kind of, uh, impurity that gives it color. Yeah. And apparently they have not figured out exactly what gives amethyst its purple color. Yeah. Um, there's a debate over whether it's iron oxide or manganese or some sort of nonspecific hydrocarbons. Um, but if you take amethyst, so remember, a crystal is just it, the chemistry can be exactly the same, like diamonds and graphite. Right. But the conditions are different under which they form. And so they form different crystalline structures and appear to be totally different from one another. Same thing happens with amethyst. If you take amethyst and the conditions are different in that the temperatures are much greater, it doesn't form purple amethyst. It forms yellow citrine. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. I love crystals. <laughs> And, I mean, we could probably go on and on with different types of gemstones, but I think everyone gets the point. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I think they do as well. Like you could take any gemstone and break it down and explain exactly what gives it its hue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but but I, think it's, I think it's all here. Right. So um, that is how crystals form. And for a very long time, people just kind of appreciated crystals – as um, for their beauty or their shape or something like that. One thing we didn't say that I think we should say, Chuck, is a a crystal that forms under ideal conditions will take one of those seven shapes you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, But since the conditions are rarely ever ideal, they'll actually form other shapes under different conditions, things like plate-shaped or table-shaped or um, needle-shaped, acicular acicular. Um, so there's other shapes they can take. And people have appreciated these things all the time. Like if you've ever looked at a crystal, it's just like a, a shock of what looks like incredibly sharp needles yeah, or just a tumble of perfectly shaped cubes growing out of some lumpy rock or something like that. There's a lot to, to appreciate there. Um, and if you, if you subscribe to crystal healing, which has become a thing again, um, 
this has been going on, this idea that these things are not only beautiful, but that they contain some sort of energy that humans can harness to uh, maybe straighten our own energy out or overcome disease or something like that, um, that this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, so just a quick shout before we get fully into crystal healing and what that's all about. Um, every I want to encourage everyone to go look up some images of uh, the Cueva de los Cristales, mm-hmm. the Cave of Crystals in Chihuahua, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. If you want to see like some of the most beautiful stuff you've seen in your life that looks like something from a movie, like it looks like the Fortress of Solitude right? Uh, in Superman. Yeah. Just unbelievable, um, these, these images of spelunkers and like these caves where some of these crystals are believed to have been growing for like half a million years. It's really, really something else. Yeah, that was one thing. So we talked about how fast that they can grow. Um, or they can also take a very, very long time. Those are the big ones. Yeah, they're the big ones. But also um, some f- crystals form just by nature slowly, whether they're big or small. So like garnet in particular forms atom layer or atomic layer by atomic layer year by year. And so it can take 10 million years for just a two centimeter garnet to grow over time. Amazing. So like I was saying, with this, with crystal healing in particular, Chuck, these things are not only awesome or amazing or beautiful, um, they also supposedly contain some sort of energy. Yeah. I mean, this is where it gets a little hinky because this is one of those um, things that Western medicine, for lack of a better term, has uh, pretty much generally poo-pooed um, as pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea is that uh, these crystals um, – can carry and transfer energy that can facilitate healing of, like, disease, let's say. So you would book a session uh, with a crystal healer, Mm -hmm. um, and and we'll get into whether or not those people are credentialed at all here in a minute. But um, And they will lay you down on a table, and they will put different crystals. Um, Some crystals facilitate some sort of energy. Others facilitate another sort of energy. And they don't all agree on on that as well, we should point out. That's kind of a big red flag. It's a big red flag. Uh, And then these crystals are placed on your body in various points. And um, they will tell you that that will uh, bring in good healing energy and channel out uh, bad, diseased energy. Yeah. And and those those points on your body are actually pretty specific, and they follow the Buddhist or the Hindu chakras, right? So you've got one on the top of your head, you have one on your forehead, on your throat, your chest, somewhere around your heart, your stomach, your gut, and then around your groin for your root chakra. Sure. And there's a different color um, stone that's supposed to be associated with each of the chakras, and there's different stones that can be roughly of that color that you could use for that chakra. And then like you were saying, they they free up energy. Like, according to this this idea, energy can get kind of gunked up. And if you have a bunch of negative energy hanging around, um, it's going to just do you wrong until you get rid of it with crystal therapy, that kind of stuff. Um, some crystals you can just put in a room and they'll help direct energy better. Like, um, I can't remember what crystal I saw, but it's it's... It's known for its properties of facilitating communication. So really, we should have one in here for me and Jerry. Um, <laughs> like if people are talking to one another and they don't understand what the other one's saying, this crystal will kind of cure that. Um, well, that's me. And, and so uh, you are. You're, you're a pink tourmaline, Chuck. Um, so the, like this is the kind of 
This is the idea behind crystal energy. And as I was saying a minute ago, if you follow this kind of stuff, there's a whole crystal lore. And supposedly this dates back thousands of years to the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, all use crystals for healing. The problem is there's absolutely no evidence that that's the case at all. Um, People have been writing about crystals since the the, um, classical Romans, but they didn't talk about the energy properties they had. They just described them and tried to classify them. It wasn't until like the 70s or 80s that 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 the idea that they contain energy really seemed to catch on. Yeah, and there haven't been scientific studies really done uh, because um, mainstream science just kind of doesn't study stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they have done some other kind of studies. Uh, notably, almost 20 years ago, um, there was a study done at the University of London where – they got uh, – how many people was it? 80 people together, and they said, here's what we're going to do. Um, go meditate for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Hold this uh, quartz crystal in your hand. They're not going to – they don't say this, of course, but some of those are real crystals. Some of them are completely faked, but they all <laughs> believe that they're real. Right. They were lied to. <laughs> they were blatantly lied to. Half of the uh, participants, 40 of them, were primed beforehand to say, you know, just think about uh, any effects and see if you can notice any effects that these crystals are having. And so after meditating, they uh, did a Q&A session uh, and a questionnaire and said basically, like, how do you feel the crystal affected this healing session? Mm-hmm. And they found out that the effects reported uh, by those who held the fake crystals while meditating were no different at all than people who had the real crystals. Um, both reported feeling like a warm sensation in their hand holding either the fake or the real crystal. Mm -hmm. And both reported feeling an increased overall feeling of well-being. But the people who had been primed, those 40, to, you know, basically, like, think about how you're feeling and how this crystal's making you feel, they reported stronger effects than those who had not been primed. So it all sounds like placebo. Well, that's, yeah, that's what they attributed to. The whole thing is placebo, which, as far as Western medicine's concerned, placebo is great. Sure. You know, if it's if you have some sort of ailment that this can help you get over through the placebo effect, fantastic. The they they seem to kind of walk a fine line with that though, in that they are worried that people will say, "Well, I'll just use crystals right. to cure cancer rather than chemotherapy," um, and that probably won't work. But the placebo effect can't take on absolutely everything that ails you, um, and so if crystals are based on placebo. That's one way they could be dangerous. But for the most part, it's considered pretty harmless. Yeah, just know that you're going in to see someone who is not, uh, like, licensed or uh, certainly not medically licensed. But I think generally in all states, there's no, like, licensing of crystal healers. There's no organization looking over that. No, I think there are some organizations but the that, that do um, accredit individual healers, but those organizations aren't accredited themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like at some point down the line, some like the, the accreditation is just being pulled out of the air. Yeah. And then there's this other thing that's a little more troublesome uh, when it comes to babies. Um, there is this belief by some that Baltic amber necklaces will help uh, your baby's teething. Have you heard of that? Or your toddler's teething. No, I hadn't heard this, but... Um, the idea is that uh, something called uh, succinic acid is released. It's pain relieving, and it's released mm-hmm. from the Baltic amber 
because your child is wearing this necklace and the skin of the child is heating up this Baltic amber and it's being released uh, and like gathered into the bloodstream and making your little kids teething better. Right. But there's, and there is succinic acid in Baltic amber. It's true. But apparently it's just like one of those kernel of truth things because it's not, it's not been shown to be able to be released from the Baltic amber by saliva or body, body heat. heat. Yeah. So it's And it's dangerous because you should not put a necklace around your baby or toddler's neck when they sleep. Because yeah, right, or they can stones choke. in their mouth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, or do they put stuff in their mouth? Well, that's what for them to teeth on are these little necklaces made of this these stones. Oh, I didn't think they were supposed to chew on them. I thought it just laid against their throat. No, I think they're supposed to chew on them. Hmm. That's what I got. I'll have to look that up. Um, I thought the idea was it laid against their skin and it was absorbed into the skin through body heat. I think that's part of it, but I think it also, they chew on it too. That's oh. what I got from it. Well, boy, you're really doing it wrong if you give your <laughs> baby a necklace to chew on in their sleep. Right. So, <laughs> so um, I have no issues with that, though. I should say I used to carry around a crystal um, in my pocket all the time. Oh, yeah? Yeah, all the time for years and years and years. And, like, I, I don't, recall really thinking it contained any energy or anything. It was more like a, just a, a neat thing to just kind of rub, kind of like a fidget spinner, but but much prettier to look at. Okay. You know, just, just something to have in your hand or whatever. Just keep it in your pocket. What I, ages was this? Oh, uh, like 20s. All right. I think that explains a lot. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so uh, why, what age is appropriate for carrying a crystal around in your pocket? 20s. Okay, okay. That's when that happens. That's when you listen to the doors. Sure. And you burn incense and stuff like that. That's right. Um, so, yeah, more power to you if you're into crystals. Just don't don't shun medical advice if you have a real big problem. No, definitely don't. Um, and that's, oh, I have one more thing about crystals, Chuck. You got a second? Yeah. Okay. Remember how I said that graphite and diamonds are the exact same thing? They're just arranged differently crystal-wise? Yeah. I saw in a couple of different places that a diamond, since they're formed under tremendous temperature and pressure, when they're taken out of that environment and brought up to Earth, they will, over a long enough time period, melt into graphite. Amazing. It's just too long of a time period for humans to ever witness it. Hmm. Yeah. So that's crystals. Get ye to the Smithsonian whenever you get a chance. Go to the Museum of Natural History and just gaze and wonder and also wonder how your pants got down when the light came back on and the fluorescent <laughs> mineral display yeah. and since I said that it's time for listener mail yeah which one should I do here how about uh, nicknames uh, hey guys uh, really enjoying the short stuffs oh. and the nicknames episode was no exception um, but I was surprised that you didn't go into the origin of the term nickname I didn't think about that. I didn't either. I felt pretty shame. Yeah. Uh, I'd always assumed, this might sound silly, that the first true nickname was Nicholas shortened to Nick, so they called them nicknames. But she did a little searching and said that's not quite right. Looks like the term started as a Middle English word in the 1300s, E-K-E dash name, pronounced ick name, meaning additional name. So over time, as people said, an ick name became a nickname, and it's nickname. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, we didn't have time to look this one up, but I'm, I'm assuming... I'm a trusting Liz. Yeah. 
Liz, I hope you're not steering us wrong. Yeah, she said, uh, my husband's name is Nick, which is what got me thinking of it. Uh, and I jumped to that conclusion. If you could give Nick a shout on his, uh, on your show, it would be great. His birthday is next week, which means by now it's probably a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So happy birthday, Nick. Happy birthday, Ick. Uh, and they are counting down the weeks until their twins are born. Oh, boy. Liz is expecting a baby girl and a baby boy in late June, uh, their first children. And she said, uh, we've been listening to a lot of your show while pregnant. Forget Mozart and Beethoven. I'm convinced that listening to stuff you should know in utero makes babies smarter. Of course it does. And that's from Liz and Nick and uh, babies that will be named uh, Josh and Mm -hmm. Chuck and Jerry. That's right. Yeah, they need to have triplets, huh? I think Chuck and Jerry's a good name. Okay. And Josh. Yeah. The the outsider. Josh. No, it could be Josh and Jerry or Josh and Chuck. What if, what if both of them's middle name is Jerry? Josh Jerry and Chuck Jerry. <laughs> I think that sounds great. <laughs> I think it does too. Well, thanks again, Liz. I hope you're right on this one, because if not, we're going to have follow-up listener mail from other people who are pointing out how you're wrong. Either way, best wishes on your new expanded family, and happy birthday, Nick. If you want to get in touch with us like Liz did, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com check out our social links, or you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.